Hello and welcome to episode two of Spoil Your Rain, a new Irish podcast looking at culture and politics in the island of Ireland. Uh, today's episode is uh, on the 12th, uh, a particular cultural phenomenon uh, that occurs every year in Northern Ireland. And on that note, I'm going to ask uh, my contributor, Ben Simmons. Hello. And obviously this is me, Jack Adam. I've completely changed the order, so my listeners can live with that. So the first question I have for you, Ben, is uh, so for the 12th or 2015, what are what are your predictions? Are we going to see a, a huge riot? I honestly don't think so. Um, I would sort of be more hopeful about it. I don't particularly know why. Um, I think I think the outcome of the British general election with a Tory majority puts the sitting uh, unionist. Coalition. Uh, coalition on a slightly more secure footing and while there's obvious, obviously going to be some sort of anxiety I don't think that it will have a repeat of 2013 so you would think it would be more like last year where it was tense there was some kerfuffles but there wasn't the kind of violent outbreaks of violence and attacks on police and the multi-million pound bill at the end of it. Um, I suppose when we start talking about it, how bad is it going to be? I suppose we're sitting here and it's always, it's very comfortable to kind of go, oh, well, it wasn't that bad this year and I don't know what it's like to be sitting up there. To live in the I, middle of it, yes. Yeah, I haven't lived in Northern Ireland since I was seven years old, so... Um, yeah, and I suppose actually that that's yeah. a that's a good point to to to, to bring up is that you're you you are um, you know from a passport perspective a citizen of Northern Ireland. I mean you're you're from there and your your family on your father's side is from there, so you have a different pers- you have a better perspective say than I would. Uh, I, for a long time, I kind of thought I did, but the more people I meet who lived and grew up in the north, the more kind of distant I feel although the one I had an interesting experience actually in 2013 I was in Armagh uh, for the John Hewitt summer school and while it's predominantly a literary event uh, one of the people I got to hear speak was Andy Pollock now he had just retired as the director for the Center of Cross-Border Studies which is based out there Mm -hmm. and it was very interesting because obviously he'd been the sort of the figurehead of an institution for a long time and how he presented his talk was as being more frank about the Northern Irish situation and sort of reflecting on his own career. Uh, one of the things that was sort of that dominated his talk was how the recession had such a negative effect on cross-border relations, the, the shrinking of spending automatically meant that when both um, the Northern Irish MLA, the, the Irish Dáil and Storm, uh, uh, Westminster, Westminster uh, were making cuts, the cross-border initiatives were Taking uh, yeah, f- f- one of the first targets, a lot of those items, cuts. Yeah. You know, like, um, it was all very well from 1998 to talk about pumping money into things that was going into what would be like the height of the, the boom. Yes, of course. So, and, and one of the actual... The, the it's easier things, to make an argument to spend money on such a thing yeah. when you have, uh, in our case, uh, sort of illusionary, but there, surplus, there, there were surpluses, budgetary surpluses from the Irish 
uh, exchequer. And I suppose the view would be, well, we, we can afford to spend money on this. And then once there's a recession, people go, well, we want to spend money on hospitals and on schools. And why are we pumping money in, into this? Exactly. And actually, Pollock brought up, uh, which is quite interesting, he looked at the comparisons of, he, he talked actually during the recessions, particularly when the IMF was in the Republic. So you had the Troika here and the the bailout, essentially. Mm-hmm. And there was a certain snobbishness he like rec- uh, registered in Northern Ireland yeah. towards the Republic for putting itself in that situation. And one of the things he drew attention to quite starkly when he was talking was the situation financially in Northern Ireland. It, the, the, the tax receipts for Northern Ireland go, oh, they don't even begin to eat into the cost of running Northern Ireland As for the British Treasury. Yeah. And you know how much it is subsidized by the rest of the United Kingdom is obviously a growing concern. But like back then, and I suppose especially after that summer, because that was actually would be happening now. The John Hewitt summer school would be it's happening this weekend this, this week, year. Yeah. So it, it it's it's just kind of interesting. I just thought we'd bring in. And I mean that up. that's a good point as well. I mean, you know, I I've lived here since nineteen ninety eight, uh, and I I lived in Drumhair in, in Leitrim. And we were obviously, we'd be more aware of the border than, let's say, you would in Dublin. Yeah. And so we would cross the border to go to Enniskillen. And, and I was involved in, a, in some of the early cross-border projects that were funded by the Peace uh, 2, the end of Peace 2 and the beginning of the Peace 3. And, and those two initiatives are, there were EU initiatives designed specifically to, to pump money and into the border region to try to bring around uh, about a sort of a, a closer communication between different communities but it was also about getting young uh, teenagers to talk to each other in a sort of uh, a neutral space or a shared space yes so I mean I took part in it on a cultural exchange so we were part of a youth theater and we took part in cross-border parades and there were some plays and cultural events like that. But I remember doing a, a cross-border parade in Oma with a, uh, I don't know if it was a, a, a unionist group, but I'm assuming it was. And I remember there was a significant, shall we say, undercurrent in, in Oma that was not happy about that. Yeah. And so that was even in the early 2000s, and, the, and it was there. Yeah. It was a, a sort of a cultural sort of, we don't want this, you know. I suppose the, like I would have been similarly involved in like um, samba bands when yeah. I was a teenager. And I went over to the Northwest Academy of Arts, which briefly existed in Derry, which was actually a really interesting cross-border program, getting kids to go away to do music and art and drama for two weeks mm-hmm. in essentially a small college campus as teenagers. Yeah. It was also, obviously, it was great fun and everything, but actually meeting loads of people from, like, yeah, you do meet, obviously, most commonly people from the cities like Derry or Belfast, but you're meeting people from more rural areas as well who'd mm-hmm. gotten to know the program through schools or whatever. But I suppose just to bring it back to the 12th more directly, I, I, I'll i answer the question as well. But what does the 12th mean to you? The 12th to me? I mean, I have actually never been in the North during the 12th. Mm-hmm. So I've never experienced what that is like, but I've seen it on, mm-hmm. on TV. And I've seen it after the fact, post facto, yeah. through YouTube. Uh, my view of the 12th is has changed from when I was young. When I was young, it was, it was the, the view of it was pretty common of people who lived in the South was, that's a mistake. That's, that's just a really violent, really sort of very openly sectarian, they're trying to demean another community. And it was sort of, the, 
that was sort of the view of the time. It was a sort of latent but pretty strong kind of Republican feeling, particularly in the border counties. Again, that's not really a Dublin specific. You'll see that in the border. But as I got older and as I met more people from the north and as I got a better understanding of it, and that understanding, and it's and it, it, we have to acknowledge it, it is an understanding of a sort of a, a, a Protestant cultural belief and mm. they're fully entitled to have that. I've kind of moved more to a centrist position where I go, it's a parade, it's about heritage, I'm all for heritage. But it's about, there's they have one track that seems to be about kids and having family time and it's a public holiday and grandparents and all of that and that's all great. But then there's this sort of undercurrent which is deeply sectarian, uh, violent, paramilitaries, and that's the problem. And for anyone listening who isn't exactly sure why the 12th is celebrated, it um, comes from the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. So it was the 12th of July, 1690. Uh, the Dutch William of Orange, William of Orange uh, defeated James II of England, and making fundamentally a prevalent Protestant monarchy in the UK. In the UK. Um, and funnily enough, actually, just as a point of historical fact, uh, William of Orange was supported by the Pope. His campaign against the Catholic King was supported by the Pope. So you had an unusual uh, political, religious divides there where yeah. the Pope was supporting a Protestant usurper yeah. against the Catholic monarch. Well, like, uh, the, the Battle of the Boyne itself was much more... like In, in the Irish context, it obviously had a very lasting effect, but it was actually a part of a pan-European conflict that was happening at the yes. time. And, and it does tie into the yeah. wider wars of religion that raged for basically 300 years. Yeah. Um, I suppose for me, the 12th, um, having grown up mostly in Donegal, it was always good fun because it meant all the Northerners came yes. and came to Donegal Fled, to yeah. spend the, the weekend or spend the day or two, whatever it is, to usually visit friends that they had out there and mostly everyone just sat in the pub and had a few drinks. And, and holiday homes. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, that, that is in Donegal and I think to a lesser extent in Leitrim, but definitely in Donegal, I mean, there's a significant amount of people who are primarily domiciled in the north mm-hmm. who have houses in Donegal, Cavan, in border counties. Yes. Yeah. And so that as well, it has, it, there's a certain escapism to the border. Yeah. And I actually, on, on one of the points that occurred to me when I was, when, before we were going in to do this podcast today was, if we were to stop the 12th, if for whatever, let's say uh, Cameron decided for national security reasons to ban the 12th, okay? Yeah. No. Prompted by some sort prompted of Prompted by some sort of attack. Yeah, yeah. He bans it. Full stop. What would be the economic impact on border economies <laughs> for the removal of the 12? I mean, it's a legitimate question because money uh, is spent in bars, B&Bs, hostels, restaurants, yeah, was, uh, certain, uh, yeah. uh, the carnival in Bundoran. You know, anyone who's been to Bundoran on the 12th, you're meeting more people from Belfast than you're meeting people from Bundoran. Yeah. And, and, and so it is a moneymaker mm-hmm. for the border. Mm-hmm. counties and we don't really talk about that living yeah. in the republic of Ireland, but it's a money maker it is yeah, yeah. Like, um, it's a northwest little earner and obviously like for me it was actually sometimes i'd occasionally see some family or some you know friends that i hadn't seen in a long time just because that's when they that's when they visited they would um, come down yeah i suppose will we will we have to make this a little bit more serious now yeah at this point um despite that was that was you know fun but 
Yeah, I suppose for this year, um, I tried looking at kind of get a sort of tone overall of what's happening with the articles. Now, most of it... This is articles in the Belfast Telegraph. Articles in the Telegraph or the BBC. Or yeah. uh, I tried looking for some things on RT, but it was generally just a bullet or kind of a rewrite of a summary provided by a source newscaster. Um, it's also terrible timing for the North because, I mean, obviously the, the, the oxygen of the news is now focused 100% on Greece. So unless they do something really colossal, I don't think they're going to get a lot of airtime. Really. Yeah, of course. You know, it's that too. It's, it's, so it's in a way, relegated. You that they're, they're being relegated down the, down the, down the, the trend. I think so. I think a lot of people would be happy for that, to be honest. Yes. Yeah. But no, you're right. I mean, we're talking about John, John Barry's article. It's John, John Barry's article in, in The Telegraph. It's about flags. And he's a Green Party councillor and he's a professor of literature? Uh, no, he's a politics professor politics. in Queens. Okay. And he's the councillor for North Down. And uh, my, my, reading, my reading of his article was he, he's talking about what, what seems to be happening recently in Northern Ireland is there's a proliferation of paramilitary flags. So these are flags of the Red Hand Commandos who were a... Uh, loyalist uh, uh, splinter group from the UVF who committed a series of killings uh, throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They've been officially on ceasefire since 1995, but these flags have been going up predominantly from, from his article. He's talking about um, working class loyalist estates, and they're going up on lampposts and um, on public property. He sort of describes it as a marking of territory. Marking of territory, yeah. Um, and I suppose to, to, to sort of to be fair, uh, this has been going on 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 the on the opposing side. I mean, this has been going on with the nationalist community for a long time as well. The difference would be I don't. There aren't really as many paramilitary flags on the other side of the equation. They tend to put up the tricolor, which is a legally understood. It's just a national symbol. Flag. Yeah. But then again, obviously, there's the more sort of more controversial images you get, obviously, in terms of graffiti. Yeah. Like there's the I think it was in Carrickford. There was a recent UDA recruitment mural. And for the real IRA, yeah. they have a whole new campaign in Derry. Um, so, John Barry's article, he, he is sort of, he, he's critiquing, my understanding of it was he was critiquing middle class unionism. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, we can't just uh, ignore these, the people who are putting the flags up, we can't just write them off mm -hmm. as recalcitrants who are sort of running against the wheel of history. Or like the few bad eggs. The few bad eggs, eggs, because that that is just not the case. These this is a significant amount of people we're talking about up in Northern Ireland. And in fairness, there's there are people who have a point of view and they have rights and they have a they have a right to articulate their displeasure with what's going on up there. The the question is how do it's about when does that articulation become a threat to somebody else and how sorry how do we get them to a place where they can communicate to the wider populace mm -hmm. what they want. And this is always the problem I have when I think about Northern Ireland is I don't understand what working class unionists want. Yeah. I understand they're mad. I understand they're unhappy. But that's not going to help any unless we know what the problem is. Well, I think one of the things that he did draw attention to is either a sense of powerlessness or a I think he was maybe saying rarely, but it does have a collusion between like uh, the PSNI, uh, the transport in Northern Ireland, and obviously the Northern Irish executive in sort of dealing with the flag situation 
obviously they don't want to send out just standard employees into areas where they feel that there might be sort of a real more present danger more yeah. reactionist loyalist groups that are quite a potentially violent so obviously they don't want to risk employees and things like that and he talked about counsellors kind of working behind the scenes and he talked about he, he did make a division of what side those counsellors are from I, I imagine he's just talking about general counsellors sort yeah. of trying to keep people more content um, the point that he brought up I think was that was most interesting that perhaps the opportunity for a, like a working class loyalist to mark themselves in opposition to mainstream unionism like the UUP or the DUP what did you think about that sort of I mean, position there, that he took? There, there was, there's a, there was a unionist uh, who created the the PUP. His name was David Irvine, and he created the Progressive Unionist Party, which was designed to be a sort of working class loyalist voice, in contrast to the UUP and the DUP. And so, I would say that this has been tried before, and. The PUP, as far as I remember, only ever had one member of the assembly. Yeah. So the voting patterns of uh, working class unionists does not seem to coalesce around a party just for their interest. In saying that, uh, Jim Allister's traditional unionist voice seems to be a newer attempt at this. Yeah. He's articulating a kind of change in the North. He's saying, we have a system through the DeHaan electoral process where there is no formal opposition. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, this is nuts. We have to have an opposition because it's a parliamentary system. People need to be opposed to stuff. Yes. And he talked about, well, we could loosen the DeHaan system and make sure that the people who are, the majority is made up of the nationalists and unionist communities, but that the other parties can form a oppositionless block that will scrutiny legislation and vote against it, and you'll have an actual relatively normal political discourse. So, I mean, if, if he can manage to get that across the line in next year's uh, parliamentary elections and get a significant... And he's able to basically hive off seats from the UP and DUP, well, then he has... This is the, the formation of what we're talking about, yeah. a separate... Uh, unionist working class party yeah. but the dynamics up there are not conducive to such a thing yeah. but you think you would need something like that to sort of address what Barry's talking about in terms of sort of well I think so because in making the, these communities feel less isolated well yeah because they need to feel like they have their own representatives but also the when Jim McAllister came on the scene when he left the DUP over power sharing in 2008 I mean, he has pretty consistently articulated this separate vision, and he has he is forcing, in some ways, the DUP to sort of adjust itself to try to counteract his criticisms. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, you could argue that if you have a, a force like his working in the political landscape, the larger parties will try to co-opt his ideas. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, they're concerns in these working class areas might be assuaged by that it's i don't know how well that's going to work yeah but it, it seems to be that's an attempt at it i suppose the overall tone I, I kind of i get this a lot of the time when i read stuff on obviously my own field like northern irish poetry and that sure when they're talking about 
sort of cultural formations and national and uh, community identities. The more I read about, as we consider the group of people to be potentially violent, to be shrinking in number, at least from pre-Good Friday Agreement, those who are actually willing to take up arms or riot to have actually decreased as an amount of people, at least uh, rhetorically speaking. Or yeah. The violence is less directed between two sides than like the opposite communities, and it's boiling down, at least in a kind of layman way, to a question of prosperity. Like, these people aren't, a lot of the time, who feel angry and aggrieved. It's the same in, I suppose, in the Republic in terms of the people who are feeling most aggrieved from the recession are those who... And, and that comes back to one of the problems that exists pretty starkly in Northern Ireland, is that the areas of greatest social and economic poverty are also the areas that are these so-called hotspots yeah. of tension and violence. And the solution is to create a functioning economy in Northern Ireland yeah. where you don't have 30 to 35% of the workforce on a public sector and that you have an actual functioning economy where your tax receipts will actually make up the budget because mm -hmm. that's not possible right now. But to do that, to create a functioning economy in the North, you actually need to create a climate for businesses to want to come to the north yes. and i don't see that climate yeah. i don't see that climate on a social front so whether you're talking about gay marriage or the treatment of minorities um because there's been a there's been a spiking level of attacks on people who are for just to be blunt about it not white yeah and that's a problem that's a really and that's cross community that's that's just across the board there's yeah. not like one particular group that has been particularly bad on that. They've all been terrible on this issue. Yeah. So that if you're if you're an if you're from California and you want to bring a tech company or a software or sorry, let's say a, let's say you want to do a Green Core or something like that, why would you go to the north? What is the economic benefit of going there? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what that answer is. I mean, they want if they lower their their corporation tax to match the republics to twelve point five. Okay, on paper, it would seem somewhat attractive to a foreign businessman. But if you're if you're going to go into an area where there may or may not be yearly riots, mm -hmm. and you can't guarantee that your senior management that you will bring over, if they are gay or if they are black, will not receive some form of racial or some sort of uh, discrimination, then why on earth would you move your company there? Yeah. And even if that's only perceived... Fear. No, no, that's the other thing. Even if that's not true, but if the perception of it is there. Yeah. Like when we talk about um, the cake situation a couple of weeks the ago. Asher, the Asher cake bakery, yeah. For me, that was just uh, an issue because the money had... Like we, we've discussed this privately. Yeah. The money was already taken. The money was taken, yeah. Actually, on the Asher, just, just to make the point on the Asher thing, I voted yes to the gay marriage referendum. And I've been a long believer in that we should not really tell people what to do yeah. in their lives. I'm a big free speech guy. I'm a big believer in sort of libertarian, leave people alone, mm -hmm. get out of their business. Um, but on the Asher Cakes controversy, when that first happened, 
uh, me and Ben were having a discussion about it, and I said to Ben, you cannot by law force a company to do things that it doesn't want to do. And then we found out during the court case that Asher Bakery had taken money and then refused them because they were a gay activist group. And that was the problem. That was the discrimination. The fact that they took money, entered into a contract, and then broke that contract for an arbitrary reason. Yeah. Now, if Asher's had just said no and not taken any money, I don't see a legal problem with that. I don't particularly, I wouldn't shop at that store. I wouldn't buy their products. But they have a right to be whatever way they want to be. And they will be judged in the public square. Yeah. And people who don't want to go there won't go there. Yeah. And there's a social ostracization and that's all legal too. And, so that, and that sort of is a more soft hand way of yeah, it, encouraging businesses to be more open. To be more open. Because if, I, my view has always been if you impose stuff uh, by legal fiat, it's, very, it's much easier to prompt a larger backlash. Mm-hmm. When, and oftentimes, and I, and I say this with some delicacy, we're talking about an older generation that have a significant problem with this. Mm-hmm. And in 20 years, that older generation will be far smaller. Yeah. And so, for lack of a better phrase, we're going to outlive them, mm-hmm. and it'll go away. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's about waiting a little longer, but we'll get rid of this mm-hmm. through demographics alone. Yeah. Actually, the idea of something as a waiting game, uh, especially in terms of like public attitudes and opinions, I suppose, I I, I kind of assume in a in this half naive way, half hoping way, that that will kind of eventually come around with things like the twelve. I do see, uh, like when the FLA festival, uh, Irish music festival was hosted in uh, Londonderry, there was um, sort of the more collaboration between cross-community groups. And yeah, it was, it's, it's, you know, predominantly it's an economic event and it's, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to promote what you do, to make money, to give the city a good reputation, good vibe, attract tourism and that sort of thing. But those things I think are a good step forward. And I think that you could possibly... A hope for a sort of a d d association of the twelfth with violence, but I think that's more of a, a long term thing. But like, do you think that's something that might just be waited out, or do you think that's something that actually starts to need to be confronted more directly in terms of people's attitudes? I think I think uh, I think of the first part. You're right. I think yeah, we 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 will see a change as the last generations who remember actively remember the troubles pass on mm-hmm. that there will be a commensurate drop as it leaves living memory mm-hmm. right so that's good that's a positive thing it's a waiting game but it's a positive one mm-hmm. the problem i see is if you have structural unemployment in these areas then young men it's particularly young males who are going who have already been involved in let's say 10 years of sort of small-scale riots, throwing fireworks at cops, throwing rocks. And if they don't have any jobs and they don't have any real structure to their lives, then what's to stop them continuing that into their 30s and 40s and 50s? And that becomes a different problem. Yeah. Because that's not... That's sort of orphaned from the troubles because they have no living memory for it. So it's about sort of trying to get those groups of people under 40 mm-hmm. uh, out of the sort of economic spiral that they're in. Yeah. But on the first point, I think you're right. Oh, no, I think as, as the generation that remembers the troubles pass on, mm-hmm. that once it moves out of living memory, then it'll become a different uh, problem. I actually had a quick glance at um, Simon Hamilton's budget 
Yes. Uh, just the PDF that's available on the, the MMA website. And it's very interesting, the introduction, because it does go to sort of, not belabors the point, but it does draw a huge amount of emphasis on the fact that there is no money. Like there's a nervous, not a, a nervousness, but definitely an acknowledgement of we don't have it. He's like initially there's an acknowledgement of a one billion decrease in funds, and so the the budget was announced. A one billion decrease in funds is a ten percent cut to their budget, right? Is that basically commensurate? Well, it would like this uh, for fifteen sixteen. It was announced at ten. I think it was just over ten billion. Wow. Okay. That's and insane. the public pension service for. Fifteen sixteen is a hundred and twenty two point five million. I mean, it, it, this is this is similar to our discussion about Greece. I think once you get into the numbers like that, it is almost unfathomable to think about as an average citizen. Do you know that kind of way? You're kind of going, how do we pay that? In any like, how do you fix that? Yeah, I think budgetary I, problem. I think even when you start discussing, like, I, obviously for people who are financial professionals and that they can sort of cognitively co well, yeah you know you can comprehend what is 122.5 million whereas i can't actually imagine any object that exists in that number yeah yeah in the, the only things that exist in that number in my surrounding are things like atoms <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> you know no, I am, how, how how do you conceive of like i don't even know uh, what a billion would look like in cash i mean i'd love to see it but yeah. i have no idea what that I mean that's like a yeah. truck full of money and the the other thing about the the twelfth as it relates to the north generally, and this is again going back to the perception issue, and I I agree with you. I think that a lot of the guys who are involved in the in the shall we say the planning of the twelfth, yes, they have actually made some significant strides to to get a grip with some of the antisocial and very violent behavior. They've actually tried. Mm -hmm. quite significantly and I think they don't get enough credit for that yeah and you know it might sound odd me saying it I'm a guy who's not from there but I think that they they should be given a bit more credit because they have tried and you yeah. can tell that they've tried and it's hard yeah and the without a corresponding uh, vision so it's one thing to contain a problem the other because they don't have a vision to articulate how do we make this more palatable to the groups that really don't like this? Mm -hmm. But how do we also separate the very nice, feel-good family uh, public holiday aspect of it mm -hmm. from the violent, uh, sectarian, some sectarian band aspect of it? Yeah. And I think it has to be that clinical. You have to literally go in and take them apart. Yeah. I, I also think for like for a political climate in Northern Ireland, like... Yes, I think power sharing is innately was 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 innately a positive step. Well, it had to happen. Didn't it? Yeah, the difficulty I imagine, okay, like if I was to be living up there myself, I would find it very difficult. Like, say you are a say you're you're innately a conservative person, but you're undergoing hard times. You know, you're maybe either you're working part time. Other members of your family are either unemployed or working part time as well, or the job is very low paying because we got to remember that Northern Ireland the wages are Extremely quite lower low. and the working hours are a little bit longer than what we'd work in the Republic of Ireland. So it that's something to kind of keep in mind. But say you're in that situation, and you're 
relatively socially conservative, but you are aware that the party that is your natural ally, your the mainstream parties that your natural ally, such as GP uh, and the UUP, are just not going to. They're not going to advocate for more social spending on stuff like welfare. They're not, no. Or benefits or increases to hourly wages. They, they tend not to. Or education put, funding yeah, for that matter. Or, yeah, or education funding for that matter, yeah. which is obviously putting a lot of squeeze on institutions like Queen's yeah. and the University With of Ulster. With the huge cuts they've just announced for Queen's, and you wonder yeah. about how that's going to impact them. Yeah. I mean, we're both in the same university, both doing doctorates and you and I both know uh, that in Trinity right now a significant number of uh, the doctorates in my year and I think in yours as well are from Thurman. Yeah. Well and, it provides and, a very suitable alternative. Oh well, yeah of course and, and Trinity is not in any way an Irish university. It is not. It's not. Culturally it's not. It, mm. is, it is a British university that happens to be in Ireland you know yes, yeah. well, and, and jokingly yeah, I've so. said to colleagues I said you know this is you know Cambridge by the Liffey this yes. is not yeah. this is not in any way an Irish college the way UCD or anyway Galway or you know uh, Tralee IT is an Irish university it's a very different cultural space yeah and that's what they want and that's fine yeah. um but with the brain drain from the north and that's the biggest problem it's the brain drain it's the kids yeah. who are getting an education and getting out yeah. And as, if that continues, and they're getting a pretty good education, Queen's University is considered a great university. Yeah. They're going there, and then they're going gone somewhere else. And in, in, isn't that a problem too? I mean, isn't that? Uh, we have it here. We have a brain drain. We've we've lost uh, those of us born in the eighties. What is there? A quarter of a million, or three hundred fifty thousand of us are gone. Pretty much yeah. left the country. Gone. Probably never coming back. Yeah. And so they all went through public education. They all went through the free fees for university. Okay, free fees, inverted commas, because now they've brought in fees to the back door through these wonderful charges. Yeah. But even taking aside a four grand charge a year, the, what you pay as, an, as a non-Irish citizen for college here is, is it's a significant saving. Yeah, it is. So they're all left. Mm -hmm. and, and so we can deal with it because we had a baby boom from about 99 to about 2006, we have a huge amount of new kids mm. under the age of 10. So they're coming up, mm. and the hope is that they will be able to sort of replace those of us who are gone. Mm. But in the North, I don't know if they have a baby boom. I don't think they do. I haven't looked at any demographic statistics for the North. Um, just to kind of go back to um, Barry's article, mm. just just briefly, I think. Um, What would you, you, you open by asking me what my view of what might happen? Would you be of, would you similarly agree with that? Or? I actually think it's going to be a lot worse. You think it's going to be a lot worse? <laughs> yeah, I actually, I do. I think it's actually going to be a lot worse. I think, I think last year it was tamped down in reaction to how unprepared people were for 2013's mm -hmm. kickoff. Yeah. And I think last year it was quite tamped down. I think this year it's gonna it's gonna be. I think it'll be similar to twenty thirteen. It could even be worse, mm -hmm. because of the cuts that have come in since then. So bear in mind that's two years ago. There's two new years of cuts, mm -hmm. a total dysfunction in the assembly over welfare um, reforms. Let's be honest, they're cuts. They're huge cuts to welfare. Um, they're not reforms. Yeah. Um, so I would see that community as madder than they were before. 
No. You know, I don't I, see them being mollified by any of this. And I think even if they're like, it's not like a case that all these communities are on welfare or anything like that. You they're know, not. No. But I think it's just more the attitude of how the government is sort of stuck in a, a stalemate. It, it, it gives off the, the vibe that it's not functioning. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and I think that's generating even more frustration. But I was kind of trying to think, what could you do um, as sort of Barry sort of argues and for engaging with these communities in the short term? So in the next five days. In the next five days, what would you do? Like, how do you go to these communities and either ask them to say, would you just put up the regular Union Jack over a UDA or do you, do you just let them do it and not make a big deal of it? Do you not react to it at all? Like, Well, I, I think the thing is, like, it's one thing to put up paramilitary slogans in what is, quote-unquote, your own area. It's another thing, and this is the problem with the 12th, from what I understand, and I'm open to correction here. The problem fundamentally with the 12th is not when they parade through unionist areas. The problem is when they go down the Ardoin. Yeah. And the problem is when they pass Catholic churches and when they show a perceived and real disrespect to the other community that they're living right beside. Because this is a very narrow maze of estates mm -hmm. in Belfast where people are living literally side by side mm -hmm. with, okay, peace walls and stuff in between them. But we're not talking a huge geographic area here. This is yeah. very small. And so you could say to them, you could attempt to say, we're going to look the other way for some of this stuff. But because there is that interaction with the other community in this hot spot, Like sort of triumphalism. Almost, yeah. yeah. Uh, again, the problem I have with this, I saw a documentary on uh, the 2013 riots and it was actually an accidental documentary because Obviously, the documentary makers didn't know this was going to kick off. And it was a young uh, reporter who works for the BBC. I can't remember her name off the top of my head. And she's from Donegal. And she was there. And they, she was able to uh, follow the, the Unionist uh, marching band. They talked to her. They interviewed her. And they showed her the utmost courtesy, actually. And they uh, explained their cultural understanding of it and where they, how they viewed themselves And then she sort of was contrasted with a sort of somewhat reasonable position to the absolute violent chaos that was going on literally five days later. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kind of think back to that again and I go, so if this is going to happen, even with a conversation with an outsider who's a perceived Catholic, so how do you, how do we know they're going to even listen to let's say someone from their own community shall we say mm -hmm. and that brings up the question is is Peter Robinson or Sammy Wilson or Simon Hamilton are they viewed in these areas as members of their own community or are they viewed as other so I think that brings us to our conclusion for our second episode of Spoiler Rain. I'm Ben Simmons. And I'm Jack Abner. And thank you for listening.